Section 11 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 3 From the Point to the Plains. Chapter 2 A Cadet Scapegrace. The evening that opened so clear and sunshiny was clouded rapidly over. Even as the four gray companies come trotting in from parade, and with the ease of long habit quickly forming line in the barrack area, some heavy raindrops begin to fall. The drum major has hurried his band away, the crowd of spectators, unusually large for so early in the season, scatters for shelter. Umbrellas pop up here and there under the beautiful trees along the western roadway. The adjutant rushes through delinquency list in a style distinguishable only to his stolid, silent audience standing immovably before him, a long perspective of gray uniforms and glistening white belts. The fateful book is closed with a snap, and the echoing walls ring to the quick commands of the first sergeants, at which the bayonets are struck from the rifle barrels, and the long line bursts into a living torrent sweeping into the hallways to escape the coming shower. When the battalion reappears a few moments later, every man is in his overcoat, and here and there little knots of upperclassmen gather, and there is eager and excited talk. A soldierly, dark-eyed young fellow, with the red sash of the officer of the day over his shoulder, comes briskly out of the hall of the 4th Division. The chevrons of a cadet captain are glistening on his arm, and he alone has not donned the gray overcoat, although he has discarded the plumed shako in deference to the coming storm. Yet he hardly seems to notice the downpour of the rain. His face is grave, and his lips set and compressed, as he rapidly makes his way through the groups awaiting the signal to fall in for supper. "'Stanley! Oh, Stanley!' is the hail from a knot of classmates, and he halts and looks about as two or three of the party hasten after him. "'What does Billy say about it?' is the eager inquiry. "'Nothing new.' Well, that report as good as finds him on demerit, doesn't it? The next thing to it, though he has been as close to the brink before. But, great Scott, he has two weeks yet to run, and Billy McKay can no more live two weeks without demerit than Patsy here without spooning. Mr. Stanley's eyes look tired as he glances up from under the visor of his forage cap. He is not as tall by half a head as the young soldiers by whom he is surrounded. "'We were talking of his chances at dinner-time,' he says gravely. Billy never mentioned this break of his yesterday, and was surprised to hear the report read out to-night. I believe he had forgotten the whole thing. "'Who skinned him, Lee? He was there.' "'I don't know. McKay says so, but there were several officers over there at the time.' It is a report he cannot get off, and it comes at a most unlucky moment. With this remark, Mr. Stanley turns away and goes striding through the crowded area towards the guardhouse. Another moment, and there is sudden drumbeat. The gray overcoats leap into ranks. The subject of the recent discussion, a jaunty young fellow with laughing blue eyes, comes tearing out of the fourth division, 
just in time to avoid a late, and the clamor of tenscore voices gives place to silence broken only by the rapid calling of the rolls and the prompt here, here, in response. If ever there was a pet in the Corps of Cadets, he lived in the person of Billy McKay. Bright as one of his own buttons, jovial, generous, impulsive, he had only one enemy in the battalion, and that one, as he had been frequently told, was himself. This, however, was a matter which he could not at all be induced to believe. Of the academic board in general, of his instructors in large measure, but of the four or five ill-starred soldiers known as tactical officers in particular, Mr. McKay entertained very decided and most unflattering opinions. He had won his cadetship through rigid competitive examination against all comers. He was a natural mathematician, of whom a professor had said that he could stand in the fives and wouldn't stand in the forties. Years of his boyhood spent in France had made him master of the colloquial forms of the court language of Europe, yet a dozen classmates who had never seen a French verb before their admission stood above him at the end of the first term. He had gone to the first section like a rocket, and settled to the bottom of it like a stick. No subject in the course was really hard to him. His natural aptitude enabled him to triumph over the toughest problems. Yet he hated work, and would often face about with an empty blackboard and take a zero and a report for neglect of studies that half an hour's application would have rendered impossible. Classmates who saw impending danger would frequently make stolen visits to his room towards the close of the term, and profess to be baffled by the lesson for the morrow, and Billy would promptly knock the ashes out of the pipe he was smoking, contrary to regulations, and lay aside the guitar on which he had been softly strumming, also contrary to regulations, would pick up the neglected calculus or mechanics, get interested in the work of explanation, and end by having learned the lesson in spite of himself. This was too good a joke to be kept a secret, and by the time the last year came, Billy had found it all out and refused to be longer hoodwinked. There was never the faintest danger of his being found deficient in studies, but there was ever the glaring prospect of his being discharged on demerit. Mr. McKay and the regulations of the United States Military Academy had been at loggerheads from the start. And yet, frank, jolly, and generous as he was in all intercourse with his comrades, there was never a time when this young gentleman could be brought to see that in such matters he was the arbiter of his own destiny. Like the Irishman whose first announcement on setting foot on American soil was that he was again the government, Billy McKay believed that regulations were made only to oppress, that the men who drafted such a code were idiots, and that those whose duty it became to enforce it were simply spies and tyrants, resistance to whom was innate virtue. He was forever ignoring or violating some written or unwritten law of the academy, was frequently being caught in the act, and was invariably ready to attribute the resultant report to ill luck, which pursued no one else, 
or to a deliberate persecution which followed him forever. Every six months he had been on the verge of dismissal, and now, a fortnight from the final examination, with a margin of only six demerit to run on, Mr. Billy McKay had just been read out in the daily list of culprits or victims as shouting from window of barracks to cadets in area during study hours, 3.45 and 4 p.m. There was absolutely no excuse for this performance. The regulations enjoined silence and order in barracks during call to quarters. It had been raining a little, and he was in hopes there would be no battalion drill, in which event he would venture on throwing off his uniform and spreading himself out on his bed with a pipe and a novel, two things he dearly loved. Ten minutes would have decided the question legitimately for him, but being of impatient temperament, he could not wait, and catching sight of the adjutant and the senior captain coming from the guard-house, Mr. McKay sung out in tones familiar to every man within earshot, "'Hey, Jim! Is it battalion drill?' The adjutant glanced quickly up, a warning glance as he could have seen, merely shook his head and went rapidly on, while his comrade, the cadet first captain, clenched his fist at the window and growled between his set teeth, "'Be quiet, you idiot!' But poor Billy persisted. Louder yet, he called. "'Well, say, Jimmy, come up here after four o'clock. I'll be in confinement and can't come out. Want to see you.' And the windows over at the office of the commandant being wide open, and that official being seated there in consultation with three or four of his assistants, and as Mr. McKay's voice was as well known to them as to the corps, there was no alternative. The colonel himself confounded the young scamp for his recklessness, and directed a report to be entered against him. And now, as Mr. Stanley is betaking himself to his post at the guard-house, his heart is heavy within him because of this new load on his comrade's shoulders. "'How on earth could you have been so careless, Billy?' he had asked him, as McKay, fuming and indignant, was throwing off his accoutrement in his room on the second floor. "'How'd I know anybody was over there?' was the boyish reply. "'It's just a skin on suspicion, anyhow. Lee couldn't have seen me, nor could anybody else. I stood way back by the clothes-press.' "'There's no suspicion about it, Billy.' There isn't a man that walks the area that doesn't know your voice as well as he does Jim Pinnock's. Confound it! You'll get over the limit yet, man, and break your—your your mother's heart. Oh, come now, Stan. You've been nagging me ever since last camp. Why in thunder can't you see I'm doing my best? Other men don't row me as you do or stand up for the tax. I tell you, that fellow Lee never loses a chance of skinning me. He takes chances, by gad, and I'll make his eyes pop out of his head when he reads what I've got to say about it. "'You're too hot for reason now, McKay,' said Stanley sadly. "'Step out, or you'll get a late for supper. I'll see you after a while. I gave that note to the orderly, by the way, and he said he'd take it down to the dock himself. Mother and Nan will probably come to the guard-house right after supper.' Look out for them for me, will you, Stan, until old Snipes gets there and sends for me? 
and as Mr. Stanley shut the door instantly and went clattering down the iron stairs, Mr. McKay caught no sign on his face of the sudden flutter beneath that snugly buttoned coat. It was noticed by more than one of the little coterie at his own table that the officer of the day hurried through his supper and left the mess-hall long before the command for the first company to rise. It was a matter well known to every member of the graduating class that, almost from the day of her arrival during the encampment of the previous summer, Phil Stanley had been a devoted admirer of Miss Nanny McKay. It was not at all to be wondered at. Without being what is called an ideal beauty, there was a fascination about this winsome little maid which few could resist. She had all her brother's impulsiveness, all his enthusiasm, and, it may be safely asserted, all his abiding faith in the sacred and unimpeachable character of cadet friendships. If she possessed a little streak of romance that was not discernible in him, she managed to keep it well in the background, and though she had her favorites in the corps, she was so frank and cordial and joyous in her manner to all that it was impossible to say which one, if any, she regarded in the light of a lover. Whatever comfort her gentle mother may have derived from this state of affairs, it was hard lines on Stanley, as his classmates put it, for there could be little doubt that the captain of the color company was a sore-smitten man. He was not what is commonly called a popular man in the corps. The son of a cavalry officer, reared on the wide frontier, and educated only imperfectly, he had not been able to enter the academy until nearly twenty years of age, and nothing but indomitable will and diligence had carried him through the difficulties of the first half of the course. It was not until the middle of the third year that the chevrons of a sergeant were awarded him, and even then the battalion was taken by surprise. There was no surprise a few months later, however, when he was promoted over a score of classmates and made captain of his company. It was an open secret that the commandant had said that if he had it all to do over again, Mr. Stanley would be made first captain, a rumor that big John Burton, the actual incumbent of that office, did not at all fancy. Stanley was square and impartial. His company was in admirable discipline, though many of his classmates growled and wished he were not so confoundedly military. The second-classmen, always the most critical judges of the qualifications of their seniors, conceded that he was more soldierly than any man of his year, but were unanimous in the opinion that he should show more deference to men of their standing in the corps. The yearlings swore by him in any discussion as to the relative merits of the four captains, but with equal energy swore at him when contemplating that fateful volume known as the skin-book. The fourth-classmen, the plebes, simply worshipped the ground he trod on, and as between General Sherman and Philip Stanley, it is safe to say these youngsters would have determined on the latter as the more suitable candidate for the office of general-in-chief. Of course they admired the adjutant, the plebes always do that, and not infrequently to the exclusion of the other cadet officers. 
but there was something grand to them about this dark-eyed dark-faced dignified captain who never stooped to trifle with them was always so precise and courteous and yet so immeasurably distant they were ten times more afraid of him than they had been of lieutenant rolfe who was their tack during camp or of the great handsome kindly voiced dragoon who succeeded him lieutenant lee of the blank cavalry they approved of this latter gentleman because he belonged to the regiment of which mr stanley's father was lieutenant colonel and to which it was understood mr stanley was to be assigned on his graduation what they could not at all understand was that once graduated mr stanley could step down from his high position in the battalion of cadets and become a mere file closer yes stanley was too strict and soldierly to command that decidedly ephemeral tribute known as popularity but no man in the corps of cadets was more thoroughly respected if there were flaws in the armor of his personal character they were not such as to be vigorously prodded by his comrades he had firm friends devoted friends who grew to honor and trust him more with every year but strong though they knew him to be he had found his conqueror there was a story in the first class that in stanley's old leather writing-case was a sort of secret compartment and in this compartment was treasured a knot of ribbon blue that had been worn last summer close under the dimpled white chin of pretty nanny mckay and now on this moist may evening as he hastens back to barracks mr stanley spies a little group standing in front of the guard-house lieutenant lee is there in his uniform now and with him are the tall girl in the simple travelling dress and the trim wiry grey-moustached soldier whom we saw on the boat the rain is falling steadily which accounts for and possibly excuses mr lee's retention of the young lady's arm in his as he holds the umbrella over both but the colonel no sooner catches sight of the officer of the day than his own umbrella is cast aside and with light eager buoyant steps father and son hasten to meet each other in an instant their hands are clasped both hands and through moistening eyes the veteran of years of service and the boy in whom his hopes are centred gaze into each other's faces phil my son father no other words it is the first meeting in two long years the area is deserted save by the smiling pair watching from under the dripping umbrella with eyes nearly as moist as the skies there is no one to comment or to scoff in the father's heart mingling with the deep joy at this reunion with his son there wells up sudden irrepressible sorrow ah oh, god he thinks could his mother but have lived to see him now perhaps philip reads it all in the strong yet tremulous clasp of those sinewy brown hands but for the moment neither speaks again there are some joys so deep some heart longings so overpowering that many a man is forced to silence or to a levity of manner which is utterly repugnant to him in the effort to conceal from the world the tumult of emotion that so nearly makes him weep 
Who that has read that inimitable page will ever forget the meeting of that genial sire and gallant son in the grimy old railway car filled with the wounded from Antietam in Dr. Holmes's My Search for the Captain? When Phil Stanley, still clinging to his father's hand, turns to greet his sister and her handsome escort, he is suddenly aware of another group that has entered the area. Two ladies, marshalled by his classmate, Mr. Pinnock, are almost at his side, and one of them is the blue-eyed girl he loves. End of section 11